0: Welcome to another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger, and as always, we have another amazing guest. Today, we have Jana Eggers. Jana is the CEO of Neurologix and an expert in the area of artificial intelligence. Welcome to the show, Jana.
1: Thank you, Brian. I'm excited to be
0: here. I'm excited to have you on the show for a couple different reasons. One, you're also coming into town. For our local listeners, if you're so inclined, please do come out to the Ian Thompson Forum. Where you're going to be keynoting. That's Tuesday, February 26th at 7 o'clock at the LEAD Center. We wanted to get you on the podcast to give our audience and folks a little bit of preview of some of the things you're going to be talking about in the world of AI. To kick off the show, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into the business of artificial intelligence. Your background is broad and you've been working with companies for a long time in this space. So
1: I'm a mathematician. So undergrad work was math and I had finished school a little bit early and was trying to consider what I was actually going to do with my life. And one of my professors suggested that I look into doing research. So I first got a grant to do work in parallel computing, and that was exciting, it was a National Science Foundation. And then the next place I ended up landing was at Los Alamos at the National Laboratory. And what I was working on was an optimization problem. It was a computational chemistry work. I was working with a bunch of material scientists on conducting polymers, and I was looking at some of the optimization that we could do to make them conduct better. And because of that, neural nets became a tool. This is back in very early nineties and switched over to genetic algorithms. And that's a really long way of saying, I've always just used AI (laughs) as a tool. It's just been something that has, I have the background that's your science. So Those go together really well with AI. And to me, it was just the right tool to use for some of these problems. I then went on, I worked in expert systems, which is an earlier mid-90s field of AI, and then went into NLP. I worked at a search engine. If you look at my background, it kind of seems like I've been doing a lot of different things. But the common thread is early stage new technology, applying that technology in new fields. And oftentimes that did include what AI was in that day.
0: Absolutely. And that's a good place to start. We hear about AI. It's obviously in the news a lot more lately, but I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what is artificial intelligence? Is it machine learning? Is it advanced analytics? How would you define artificial intelligence and where have you seen it evolve in the last 10, 20 years?
1: The evolution I'll tackle first, because I get that one a lot of people say, well, why now? Why is this happening now? You've been working in it for almost 30 years now, so why am I hearing about it all the time? And it's really data and compute power. So when I was working at Los Alamos as an example, I had access to a lot of very high end craze and thinking machines, Kendall Square Research machines. We had really the top end of technology. And now, you know, that's available for anyone for a few hundred bucks on Amazon Mm -hmm. and Google and Microsoft. And so that compute power has been commoditized and that's great. The other thing that's happened was the internet. And so we now all have lots of data that's available. Research drives a lot of this. When I was at Los Alamos, I didn't have a problem getting data because, you know, we had the equipment to measure things like the chemical interactions or the structures or things like that. So it was really easy for me to get data, but a research professor didn't necessarily have access to all of the images. ImageNet Mm -hmm. made a huge contribution to AI by just getting the images that you could train and test on. Those two things combined is really what brought AI back into the forefront applications that i get excited about i get more frustrated that we're not there yet with the common things like calendar scheduling the basics. But because I've worked in other countries and things like that, I do love language translation and huge strides there, even just in the last year. And that's a problem we've been working on for 40 years, even before I was working in this field. It's more exciting than people realize as far as them impacting them every day. You know, it's the maps, it's what Waze is doing, it's what Google's doing to improve search. It is impacting us every day, it's just more under the covers. And so I think that's where a bit of a gap between people say, I hear it a lot, but I don't see it every day. Well, you don't see it every day because it's behind the scenes more.
0: How do you perceive things like machine learning or advanced analytics? Or some people would say, purists would say, well, that's not artificial intelligence. That's data mining and other things around that. And maybe you're hearing people use that buzzword of AI to position their company or to seem different than they are. How do you actually define artificial intelligence and what's different than other forms of data manipulation?
1: It's really funny how these cycles go in what we call things. (laughs) The funny thing is, it's just like within the last year, people have sort of gone back to AI because there was a time that people would say, oh, we're not doing AI. That's old school. We're doing machine (laughs) learning, right? And now there seems to be this tide of people saying, oh, well, that's just machine learning. That's not actually AI. Right. And the analogy that I give people to get them thinking a little bit differently is, Think about artificial light and natural light. Artificial light didn't replace natural light. We still have a really great use for the sun and we love our sun, but it allowed us to do new things. And it also augmented, right? I have a light on in my office right now because it's cloudy outside. So it's augmenting me there. And when we think of things like exploring the depths of caves or space or something like that, artificial light allowed us to do new things. That's a great analogy. Like I said, there's some people that are in machine learning that will say, you know, that AI stuff is the old crusty stuff and that's not what we do. And I I think what people are more trying to get across is, you know, let's think about that. Hey, has the machine actually learned? Did it learn something? Mm -hmm. It depends on how you define learning, right? Did it calculate how it should respond to get the best results? That's possible. Did it actually understand the context? of when that would apply and when not? Probably not. Again, it's sort of how you want to define the terms. And I think most people, when they're starting to say now, you know, that's machine learning and that's not artificial intelligence, what they mean is it's not the promise of what people are thinking of with artificial intelligence, which is we have something that acts like our brain.
0: Let's talk about the promise of AI. And I think there are two camps out there. You have the Elon Musk camp that I think he calls it AI is summoning the demon, And then you have the other camp that AI can help in a variety of different factors and industries. And that kind of changed the way we do and see and and think. What's your take on those two competing sides of the equation of what AI is or will be?
1: It's somewhere in between is what I'd say. And and on the one hand, I'd even say not in between. It's in a different place. I don't believe that our robot overlords are going to come and kill us, nor do I believe they're going to come take care of us. It's a different thing, just like... Artificial light is different from the sun. I do believe that there's things that we need to be concerned about and be upfront. This is why I really ask everyone to get involved and not be afraid. This is not something that should be left to just us technologists. We need people involved and engaged and understanding enough that they can help guide the systems and the understanding of the systems and what should be taking place. But the analogy that I give in my talk is, if you know Admiral Stockdale, who was vice presidential candidate at one time, he was a prisoner of war. And he said that, you know, I hate using war as the analogy there in prison, but he said that the people who survived as prisoners of war, they weren't the pessimists. Pessimists died first because they just willed themselves to death because it was terrible. They mm-hmm. weren't the optimists because the optimist died of a broken heart. At some point, they realized they weren't going to get out. And it was really the realist who just approached every day as every day, but still had a belief that they were going to get saved. And so this is, I call it Team Stockdale. And again, I'm not meaning to say that we're going to be prisoners, because I don't believe that. But I do think it's a very serious topic. And that's why I chose that analogy, is it's a serious topic that, could be an existential crisis, but running in fear from it is not going to be what gets us there. So that's why I'm not in the it's going to kill us all. Like it could if we think that way and it could be a great complement to what we're doing. I mean, I truly believe it's going to help us out in healthcare. It's going to help us out in doing things that we don't want to do. I mean, I just brought up the simple act of scheduling something and what a pain it is. I would love to have that off my plate. Great things for computers to do. I believe in the human mind and the human spirit. And I know that as it starts taking over things, as AI starts enabling and it can do more and more things, that we're gonna find more and more things to do ourselves. I don't think that we're bound to just what's in our imaginations now. And if you think that, I think you need to look back at human progress we haven't stayed the same. No one said, well, we'll never go to the moon because we've never been there before. Someone said, I bet we can do that. And that's been enabled by technology. And so that's what I see AI as. I'm not in the doom. Like I said, it's not even like I'm somewhere in between those two. I'm in a different room or chapter of the book than they are.
0: But having said that, it seems like you could definitely use the technology for good or evil. (laughs) depending on how you actually program it, what data you throw into it, how you work around that. And I think we've seen some early examples of that where, you know, you throw a chat bot into the wrong space to learn from our worst outcomings in in social media and that it starts going in different places that we don't want it to go. What are some of the things that you're seeing out there that make you think that uh, one camp or or the other camp is pushing in different directions and, and leading the way?
1: I'm glad you brought up that example because it's a really good one. And there's a lot of amazing people at Microsoft. So this is nothing about what Microsoft did with Tay, but it's a terrific example. And if we put a three-year-old, by the way, in a bar where people were swearing and talking badly, the kid would likely come out swearing and talking badly. (laughs) That's what you have to realize is we put it in that environment and we didn't put any safeguards in there. And it's a really important example because a lot of people don't know that K actually had been live in China for at least two years, I think it's four, I'm just not remembering right now, before they brought it to the U.S. And it still is live in China. There's a big difference between the internet culture and China and the U.S. I'm not making a political statement about it. it just is. And they don't have anything like 4chan in China. And right. so you have this element in the U.S. where you have hackers that really want to come in and mess with things, whether it's just to show that it can be done or for bad. And that's what they did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that could have easily been taken care of. The biggest thing that disappoints me is when a company like that, and Microsoft is not the only one, all of the big guys have had major gaffs on this. Amazon with the HR tool, Google with the photos issue. And, I mean, we can all name tons of them, right? Mm-hmm. What really frustrates me on those is they don't go in and fix the problem and show people how to, but also say, hey, there may be another big gaping hole that we forgot about. And I think that what happened with Microsoft is they got lulled into a sense of security with the success of Ice, is what it's called in China, and they didn't go and check what's gonna be different when I deployed here in a very different culture. Now, how could they have fixed that? Easy, there are some really simple ways if gets to Hitler, stop talking, right? (laughs) There's plenty of training on the internet for things you shouldn't talk about. So this isn't something that like, oh my God, we can't stop it from doing that. No, we can, just like we can with a child. Right. We're not thinking in those ways. That's why when I said we need all the people in the room, we really do. I want people excited about this and feeling like they can contribute to that and feeling like they can ask, well, like, what if someone bad does get a hold of that? What would that mean? It doesn't mm-hmm. mean don't go forward. It means put the right safe stop gaps in there.
0: You mentioned China, and obviously there's a ton of dollars in that that are going into the China market, uh, specifically in and around AI. Are you seeing any differences regionally or internationally between how different countries or folks are approaching the concept of AI and how might that play out?
1: Yeah, I think the two biggest ones are China and their investment and really, you know, what we in the U.S. consider surveillance society. And that gives them a lot more data and a lot more practice in applying it. And that's a huge difference. And it's being supported by the government, which we're not. We traditionally haven't been in the same way that they have. So that's not a judgment on, oh, my God, we should or I think we need to figure out our way. The one thing I will say that I do think I would like our government to make more investment in is infrastructure. There's a lot of infrastructure to support this. And, you know, it can be simple things like electricity for monitors, just to monitor traffic to help out, right? I mean, it's one simple example, but infrastructure makes a big difference in this. So that's one point that I pull out that's separate from the surveillance piece and what could good and bad happen there. In Europe, the big thing is GDPR. Right. And, you know, it has a huge impact on AI and it can be stagnating. I honestly am in a quite a different camp on that. I understand people fearing, you know, using data because of all the regulations and things like that. I actually think it will allow us to be better custodians of our data. And so I'm not against that. I think it's a good responsibility for all of us to have to Pay more attention where our data came from and what it's used for. So I'm actually positive on GDPR. My hope is what it will require us to do in order to respect and understand our data more.
0: So you're the CEO of Neurologics, which is an AI company. What are some of the new things that you're working on or things that excite you about the space?
1: We have an AI platform. And by that, I mean, we have a tool that engineers can use to get AI into their products faster. And what's exciting to me is I'm getting to see so many different applications, like where are people trying to be smarter in their business? And there's two sides to that, of course. One is can I be smarter for my customers? So an example that I can give, and they're public about this, we work with Procter & Gamble. We work with them on multiple advisor products. So it's an ability for someone to get to the right product and set of products. Then in addition to that, to get tips on how to use them, making it quick and easy for people where they you know, don't have to get in a 15 minute chat session where it's like, ah, I told you that or you didn't listen <laughs> to that or you didn't understand me on that. You know, it's like very direct, really easy. You can take these advisors and use them within minutes and you have an answer. And, you know, one of the stories that I met someone at dinner, told them what we did. She didn't tell me at the time, but she has a son and she takes care of him. He's older. He's got some severe disabilities and she went and used the shave advisor to figure out which razor should be using to shave her son. And she wrote Hmm. me this beautiful note back and said, I never knew that the more blades and the way that I was shaving him was probably pulling his skin more than I needed And I was so grateful, not just for the product recommendation, which I'm going out and buying, but also for the tips that it gave me. And that was on her own time, easily accessible. She didn't have to go and have a conversation with someone, get to know them. She got her answer really quickly. And that's the kind of thing that simple example, but companies enabling interaction with people and enabling their knowledge of their products to a very specific situation, which that was, is really important. And it's almost like getting out the expertise of your product without blasting it out to everyone. I can be really specific about the need that she had.
0: Yeah, being able to provide context and insight is really the key, and I think that's where the world is hopefully going towards.
1: Really at that world of hyper-personalization. Yeah, absolutely. Which is exciting, which has been promised. I mean, I even remember this <laughs> from the you know, mid-90s of everybody was going to do one-on-one communications, yep. and it never happened, but we can do it now.
0: Excellent. Well, I appreciate you being on the Inside Outside Innovation podcast. If people can't come out to the Ian Thompson Forum on Tuesday the 26th to actually see and hear more about uh, you directly, what are some ways that people can connect with you or your company in the interim?
1: I'm very easy to find. If you search for Jana, J-A-N-A, Eggers, E-G-G-E-R-S, there's lots online. There's a bunch of my talks are online. My company is NARA Logics, N-A-R-A-L-O-G-I-C-S. Our website isn't up to date. I know it's terrible. (laughs) Um, We haven't had time. Hopefully it will be, but it's easier to find me. And once you find me, you'll hear plenty about NARA too. And we're always happy to talk and engage on AI.
0: Uh, Jana, thank you very much for being on Inside Outside Innovation. Look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks and please do reach out if you need anything from us.
1: Thank you so much. I'm very much looking forward to it.
0: That's it for another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. If you want to learn more about our team, our content, our services, check out insideoutside.io or follow us on Twitter at the IO Podcast or at Ardinger. Until next time, go out and innovate.